Thank you, Don. So if you're keeping up uh, in your Bibles with our Bible reading program this year, then you've been reading some of the Psalms. Uh, the book of Psalms, and we did some Psalms in the summer, this last summer, and we're going to do a few more. The Psalms is really a collection of writings designed to help God's people, the, the redeemed, to know and to worship and to engage the Lord in, in all of life's circumstances. The word psalm means song or hymn. The, the book of Psalms is really a, a song book for the redeemed. And so over the next several weeks, we're going we're gonna to sing, at least in our hearts, several psalms of the redeemed. Today we're uh, singing Psalm 27, which Don read, just read for us. This psalm was written by David during the time between his anointing as king, 1 Samuel chapter 16, and, uh, and him becoming publicly recognized as king. It's about a, a 15-year period of time. Saul, the first king of Israel, was rejected by God, if you remember, for, for disobedience. And then God sent the prophet Samuel to the house of Jesse to anoint one of Jesse's sons as the new king of Israel. Samuel wanted to uh, anoint one of David's older brothers. He had seven of them. He was the youngest. Outwardly, they seemed more qualified. But God rejected them all. And he, and he says to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7, For the Lord sees not, a, not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looked beyond David's outward appearance, his age, his inexperience, his youth, and he saw his heart. David was a man after God's own heart. And that's clearly seen if you read through the book of Psalms, uh, particularly the, the things he wrote, the relationship he had with God. Now, shortly after David's anointing, First uh, Samuel 7, 16, Israel goes to war against the Philistines. And in 1 Samuel 17, which we looked at last week, David, as a representative of Israel... And in the power of the Lord, defeats the Philistine champion Goliath, David and Goliath. We, we saw it last week, but, but we didn't really go, we didn't go beyond. We didn't see what happened after that. This caused David to become extremely popular among his people. David was a rock star in his day after defeating Goliath. He was the champ, the heavyweight champ of the world in a sense. They chant, uh, they chanted, in chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, Saul has struck down his thousands. Saul was a great warrior. And David, his ten thousands. Just this one guy, and it's ten thousand. Good job, David. Hearing this, Saul becomes very angry and very jealous. He's already been disobeying the Lord. He's already lost any relationship we had with the Lord. And he becomes angry and jealous. And this causes the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, if you've been reading it, to feel like this episode of the Roadrunner. You guys remember the Roadrunner? Roadrunner. Wait, I don't know. Yeah. Do you remember the Roadrunner? I don't know who I'm talking to here, you, you people. You remember the, so Saul acts like Wiley Coyote. And he just keeps trying to kill David over and over again. David is constantly on the run, constantly outwitting Saul at every turn. Saul is in hot pursuit. Every once in a while, he puts out some bird seed, and he no, just kidding. Drop that's roadrunner. 
And David, David even has several opportunities, uh, if you read through, to kill Saul himself. Saul's trying to kill him, and David's men urge Saul, David, kill Saul, you know. He catches him in a cave, and we can't go into that. But David doesn't. He refuses to kill one who's been anointed by the Lord. So David just keeps on running. He's been anointed king, but instead of being king, he's suffering under the pursuit and persecution of Saul. And it's in this context that he writes Psalm 27. And woven throughout this psalm, there are two seemingly conflicting realities. Two truths about life that might not at first seem like they go together. And this morning we're going to examine those truths. And then we're going to see and we're going to learn from David as he rightly responds to these two seemingly contradictory realities. Okay? That's where we're going. Are you ready for this? Come on. Yeah, okay, wait. God bless you. Thank you. Uh, let's begin with the first reality that David was experiencing. And it's the reality of suffering in this world. The reality of suffering in this world. In this psalm, David doesn't pull any punches. In this world, in his life, suffering is very real. Verse 2, when evildoers assail me to eat my flesh, my adversaries and my foes. There are evildoers in the world, people who want to eat his flesh. Now either David is in the middle of a zombie apocalypse, or this is some kind of hyperbole, exaggeration, to emphasize that there are those who desire to completely destroy him. Let's go with option two. There was no, just so you know, there was no, uh, yeah. These flesh eaters, though, are, they're his adversaries. They're his foes, his, his enemies. They want to harm him. They want to devour and destroy him. And who are they? Verse 3, though an army encamp against me, the war rise against me. So he's got an army and the war is looming. David has an army, Saul's army. Against him. War is on, looming on the horizon. David is facing this real threat of death. Death for himself and death for uh, those around him. David has some followers and people that have joined him. And there's more. In verse 10, drop down to verse 10, he says, my, For my father and mother have forsaken me. Now we don't know if, if David's uh, father and mother had literally forsaken him. This could be symbolic. In the Psalms, there's often symbolic language. This could be symbolic for the fact that he's on the run and he's had to leave all his family, all his friends. Those who have been closest to him are no longer there. He doesn't have that mom to cry on her shoulder, that dad to encourage him. You can feel the sense of suffering because of the loss that David is experiencing. Then in verse 12, he cries out, Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe violence out. They breathe out violence. David has adversaries and false witnesses. There are people lying about him, gossiping, spreading rumors. That upstart, that power-hungry David wants to kill our king and take our land for himself. And it doesn't stop with gossip and lies. They are crying out for his violent death. David is experiencing the reality of suffering in this world. And he's not alone. He's not alone. Like David, 
We all live in a broken and fallen world, a world of suffering. And whether you're experiencing that kind of suffering right now or not, it will come. The Bible testifies to this. Human suffering in this fallen world is one of the themes in the Bible, if you haven't noticed so far. When sin entered the world, suffering followed right on its heels. After the fall, Adam and Eve suffered great loss. It was immediate. They lost their perfect relationship with God. They lost their perfect relationship with one another. Adam then suffered as the ground was cursed because of the fall, and he had to toil and labor to bring forth food. Eve suffered with pain in childbirth, and they both suffered when Abel was killed by their son Cain. Their, their son Abel killed by his brother Cain. And all of that suffering just takes place in the first two chapters after the fall. Sin enters in, and it just everything goes to hell. And the rest of the Bible is filled with human suffering. It, it can't be escaped. Both the godly and the wicked suffer. Here are just some highlights or lowlights from what we've read so far. Just a little review. The whole world, remember, suffered a great flood. Only Noah and his family survived. Abraham and Sarah suffered for 25 years of being barren, inability to have a child. Job just flat out suffered the loss of everything. Joseph Suffered by being sold into slavery by his brothers and then being thrown unjustly into prison. The children of Israel suffered 400 years of enslavement to the Egyptians. The Egyptians suffered 10 plagues from the Lord. The children of Israel suffered 40 years of wandering in a desert wilderness. And then during the time of the judges, the the children of Israel, the people suffered over and over as the surrounding nations attacked and killed and enslaved them. And that's just the lowlights of what we've seen so far in the Old Testament. There's more to come. Sorry. Now some, now some, I've heard it said, some would falsely teach that suffering is not part of the Christian life. The Christian life. And by the way, this, this teaching doesn't work in anywhere else in the world, but in the good old USA. Christians and other places sort of face the reality of suffering daily. But some teach that when you come to Christ, and if you have enough faith in God, then you'll not experience suffering. In fact, if you are suffering, it's because of your lack of faith, your own sin. Because the faithful will always experience material success and wealth and prosperity. But if you actually read through the New Testament... You see just how ridiculous this teaching is. Because not only did Jesus, the perfectly faithful, sinless one, suffer greatly, but all of his disciples, including the Apostle Paul, suffered for their faith. They suffered because they were Christians. In fact, most were killed. Most were martyred for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Last week I talked about uh, wanting to help us become better equipped to share our faith. And we're working on that. We're working on a a way to do that, the best way to do that. And part of that equipping should be that sharing your faith, representing Jesus Christ in this world, will lead to suffering. Jesus in John 15.20 promises it. He says to his disciples, A servant is not greater than his master. 
If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus wants his disciples then and now to understand that persecution, suffering, is a reality for those who represent Jesus in this world. Because like Jesus, like David, we, those who proclaim the name of Christ, have foes and adversaries and enemies. There are those who will lie about us, those who will falsely accuse us, those who will forsake us, those who want to harm us. Our world is broken and fallen and has many evildoers. And there's one evildoer, one foe, one adversary, one enemy, enemy that's behind them all. In 1 Peter 5.8, the Apostle Peter warns believers, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful, be serious, be alert. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour Again, this devouring image desires to eat our flesh. There's a real danger. We have a real adversary, the devil. Not the guy in the red suit with the pitchfork, but the guy that masquerades as an angel of light. He's a lion that seeks to destroy you. He wants to tear you from limb to limb. And yes, last week, if you remember, we talked about this. On the cross, on the cross, Satan was defeated by Jesus Christ. Satan and sin and death were defeated by Jesus Christ. Satan has been defeated and ultimately will be thrown in the lake of fire. But God, for His purposes, which we'll touch on, God, for His purposes, has for a time allowed Satan to cause, to continue to cause suffering in this world. In Ephesians 2.2, Paul says he is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is, work at, is, at, is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan was at work in the life of Saul. Saul, wily coyote, chasing down David. He was a son of disobedience. And Satan is still at work in the lives of those who disobey God, those who don't honor God. The Apostle John writes, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Our world is not just fallen and broken and damaged, but it lies in the power of the evil one, of Satan. We live in a completely fallen, broken world in every way imaginable. A world of tears and bitterness and depression and disappointment and despair, of adultery and divorce, of child abuse, of human trafficking, of abortion and pornography, of violence and crime and war and racism, of debilitating diseases and inevitable death. A world of suffering. And even if we're not right now experiencing those kinds of things, we will. It won't last. At one time or another, to one degree or another, all of us will experience suffering. Physical, emotional, spiritual suffering is a reality of our world. To live in this world, broken by sin, under the power of Satan, is to suffer. That was the reality of David's life, and it's the reality of of our lives. Sorry. Maybe you're thinking, uh, oh, thank you so much, Pastor, for the encouragement. I appreciate that. Maybe I picked the wrong day to come to church. Maybe I should have read that email and said, I'm staying home today. 
Well, maybe if we stopped here, maybe if we stopped here, I would agree with you. If all I'm going to tell you is that our world is full of suffering, you could have gotten that from uh, the newspaper. Does anybody even read the newspaper or the internet? It's all over. Anybody read the newspaper anymore? All right. But it's all over. It's, the bad news is everywhere. The reality of suffering is, is only part of the story, though. In fact, it's a small part in a much greater reality. There's another, greater, more powerful reality at work in our lives. A reality that, that can seemingly conflict with suffering. And that reality is the reality of God's goodness in our lives. And by our lives, so we're clear, I mean the lives of the redeemed. The lives of the God's chosen people. Those who put their trust in Him. If you haven't done that, then this reality isn't for you. You're on your own in this broken, fallen world. But for those who trust in Him, there's another reality. And it's the reality of His goodness in our lives. And the question comes, if God is good, why hasn't God already thrown Satan into this lake of fire? Why does God continue to allow suffering in this world if He's good? Well, I think at least part of the answer, and that's really not the purpose of this message today, not to answer that question. We'll, we'll, we'll hint at it. I'm not going to fully go there. But I think at least in part the answer is so we, the redeemed, can truly see the goodness of God in our lives. Because it's in the midst of our suffering that His goodness shines forth. That we see His goodness. There's a contrast there between the suffering of the world and the goodness of God. And His goodness is glorified. Yes, suffering is real in our lives. Yes, there are enemies and foes and evildoers all around us. For David, there's even a king, an army ready to kill him. But, but in verse 1, the goodness of the Lord shines forth. In David, as David declares, David glorifies the Lord in the midst of his suffering. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? In times of danger and persecution and suffering, the Lord gives light and direction. He saves and delivers. He shows up. In him is found the strength to carry on, David says. Whom shall I fear? Saul? Goliath? Satan? No, the Lord is good and the Lord is greater than them all. The Lord is greater than all of my suffering. Through suffering we see glory for God. Verse 5, For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Remember what's going on. Suffering all around. Yes, there are days of trouble, but God is so very good. And in those days, especially in those days of trouble, the Lord will shelter and conceal me. To borrow that metaphor we saw in the book of Ruth. Ruth who suffered greatly, if you remember. Husband died. No food. But the metaphor from Ruth, He will take me under His wings. He will protect and provide for me. And He, God, in His goodness will lift me up so that I can face the suffering that comes upon me. It's really about facing the suffering. 
with the strength of the Lord. Now in verse 10, we saw suffering. For my father, and maybe one of the worst kinds of suffering, being forsaken by father and mother, whether it's figurative or literal, it's a reality. But don't miss the second part of the verse. But the Lord will take me in. But the Lord will take me in. You see, the the contrast. People uh, in this world will forsake me. They will leave me. They will cause my heart to suffer. But God, in His goodness, will take me in. He will make me part of His family. I've lost my family, but God will take me and make me part of His family. Do you see that in the midst of David's suffering, that the goodness of God is clearly revealed? If David had never suffered, if we never suffer, then we will not truly see and experience the goodness of God as He comes through. And so in verse 13, David says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. David believes in the goodness of the Lord. He's seen it. He believes he will see it again, God's goodness in his life. Yes, in this life, in this world, in the land of the living. Suffering is real. But David believes and he experiences that in the midst of suffering, God's goodness is greater, is realer. And really, that's the question for us today. As we live in a broken, fallen world, it's a reality. As we experience the reality of sin and Satan and suffering in a world, in this world and in our lives, do we believe in the midst of our suffering that God's goodness is greater, that God's goodness is realer, that God's goodness is greater than whatever we're suffering? David believed. He had faith, he trusted in the Lord, and he experienced the goodness of God. And you know what? We have even more reason to believe than David did. We have even more of God's goodness to experience than David. Why? Because we have Jesus. We have Jesus. We have Jesus who went to the cross showing God's goodness and His love for us. In in Jesus Christ, we have all of God's goodness given to His people. The New Testament proclaims over and over of God's goodness manifest, seen clearly in Jesus Christ. Seven quick examples. Seven really quick ones. In the Gospel of John, famous examples. You've heard of these. The I am statements of Jesus. Listen to what Jesus testifies to His own goodness. He says, I am the bread of life. I provide for you in every way. I am the light of the world. I reveal sin and guide and direct you to the right path. I am the door. Through me you can enter into the presence of the Father. I am the good shepherd. I will love and care for you, my sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. Through my sacrificial death and my miraculous resurrection, death was defeated and you can receive eternal life. I am the way, the truth, and the light. I am everything to you. I provide the way to God. In me you will find all truth. In me you will find the light, the goodness, the holiness, and righteousness. I am the true vine. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Wow. What an amazing Lord we have. And that's just a small sample. There's just seven things that Jesus said that proclaim the goodness of God through Christ. So we've seen both. The reality of suffering in this world 
and the reality of God's goodness in our lives. Now, some people would say that these two realities can exist together. If there's suffering in the world, then God must not be good. Or if God is good, then there would not be suffering. But David acknowledges and Scripture testifies to the truth that they are both real. They both exist. And because of that, we have a choice to make. There's realities here, and we have a choice to make. Which reality will we embrace? Which reality will we hold on to? In light of the reality of suffering in our world and God's goodness in our lives, how will we respond? That's our third and final point this morning, responding to both realities. David never denies the reality of suffering, but he also does not see a conflict between suffering and God's goodness. And David chooses to embrace not the suffering, but the goodness of God in his life. I think this is the main reason that God allows suffering, okay? To continue in our world. Why doesn't he just end it? Because for those who believe, for those who know the Lord, suffering drives us to him. This is certainly true for David. Ultimately, it's suffering that causes us to see the Lord and His full glory and drive to Him, and He is, meets our needs. Listen, in verse 4, we find the heart of David's response to the reality of suffering. He suffered enemies, armies, persecution, death is near. And he says this, verse 4, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. David is saying, this is what I pray. This is what I really want. This is my heart's desire. In the midst of suffering, one thing I want. One thing I want. One thing I want. And that's what I'm going to seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, that I may inquire at His temple, inquire, go to, seek Him. Yes, suffering is real, but God is good. God is where I turn to in the midst of my suffering. And what I really want more than anything else in the midst of my pain and suffering is more of the Lord in my life. We see it in verses 7-9 through as well. David prays, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, God, you've told me, seek my face. And my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. That's what I'm doing. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. God's, uh, David's greatest fear is not more suffering. David's greatest fear is not that Saul would finally catch him. David's greatest fear is that the Lord would forsake him. David is crying out to God to reveal himself. He's seeking the Lord's face. He wants to know more and more of God. He prays that God will not turn away in anger. Don't cast me, don't forsake me. Because David recognizes, he recognizes his own sinfulness, that he's part of this broken, fallen world, that he doesn't deserve to be in God's presence. He doesn't deserve to seek God's face. He doesn't deserve God's goodness. So he pleads for God's mercy. He pleads that God would reveal Himself to make Himself known. 
Now the point of both verse 4 and 7 through 9 is that David, in the midst of his suffering, is with all his heart, he's seeking one thing. One thing. He wants to dwell and to know and to see and behold and to inquire the Lord. And if you think about it, if you think about it, it does seem a little strange. Because he's not asking, he's not asking for deliverance, he's not asking for relief, he's not asking for escape from his suffering. I mean, with everything he's facing, adversaries, evildoers, foes, enemies, armies, metaphorical zombies, there is a literal army encamped around him. There are people who are around him who want to kill him. And if that were me, my natural instinct would be to seek and to pray, Lord, get me out of here. Get me out of this. First, give me some safety and give me some security. Then I'll seek after you, Jesus. But instead, David says, the one thing I want is to dwell in the midst of this suffering. The one thing I want is to dwell in the house of the Lord, to fix my eyes on the beauty of the Lord, to hang out in his temple. For David, for David, seeking and dwelling with, being with God meant the temple. In fact, God in the Old Testament, as we've seen with Moses, and they built the tabernacle, they had the tent of meeting. God in the Old Testament sort of has a, a mailing address, a place to go. God on earth lives in the tabernacle, later in the temple. And David says he wants above all things in this life more than safety, more than security. What I want is to be with God. The one thing David is seeking is to experience the presence of the Lord in his life. Now let me be clear here. I'm not saying, David's not saying, God's not saying, that you can't cry out for deliverance from the reality of your suffering. David does that in other psalms. He prays many times, specifically, uh, he says, God, I'm suffering from these guys. Would you destroy them for me? Kill my enemies, Lord. David prays on a number of occasions. But in Psalm 27, he's saying that deliverance from his suffering is not the first inclination of his heart. That's not where his mind goes first. Remember, David's a man after God's own heart. And the first inclination, the first thing he thinks of uh, in David's heart is not escape from suffering. The first in, in, indication, in, inclination of his heart was to escape into the presence of the Lord. So in the midst of the reality of suffering, based on the reality of God's goodness, our first response should be to cry out for deliverance into the satisfying presence of the Lord. We need to understand something about deliverance in the Bible. Deliverance, rescue, redemption, salvation. We have lots of names for it. Has both a from and a to component. What do I mean by this? Well, suppose you're in a, a car crash. Your car is totaled, starting to catch on fire, and you're stuck in there. You can't get out. You're banged up really bad, you have broken bones, internal injuries, you're in danger, and you're suffering. And the firemen come, Don, retired fireman, leads his brigade out. They come and they, they rescue you from the car, they, they pull out, the, is it the jaws of life, the thing? Alright, see, 
Thanks, Don. Jaws of life take you and, and they put you on the curb. And then they say, have a nice day. And they turn on the sirens and head, head off. Well, that's not totally helpful, is it? It's not a true rescue. They got you out of the car. They rescued you from the fire, but you're still in pretty bad shape. And thankfully, that's not what uh, firemen do. Right, Don? Thanks. They rescue you from the car, and then they rescue you to the hospital where you can get the long-term care you need, right? Now, in the case of the fireman, he has to rescue us from the car first before he takes us to the hospital. But in the case of God, our rescue from suffering comes by first entering into His presence. And the, uh, the really great thing is this. It, it's in the presence of the Lord that we find ultimate comfort and relief and deliverance from our suffering. It's in the presence of the Lord that we're delivered from suffering. The joy of being in the Lord's presence is our strength. And so David pursues this one thing. The one thing of, of knowing more of the Lord, of being in His presence, of being with Him. And he's, and, and he's not the only one. Check this out. The Apostle Paul pursued the same one thing in the midst of his suffering as well. Check this out. Check this out. Philippians 3.13 One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. One thing I do, Christianity is really simple, guys, girls, ladies. It's really one thing. David's doing it. Paul's doing it. I forget what's behind. You don't have to worry about the past. Jesus took care of the past. And I strain, I press on for what's in front of me. My goal, my prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Well, he's clarified that earlier. Verse 7 and 8. Check this out. Paul writes, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count... I've suffered the loss of everything, forsaken, reputation, everything, but it doesn't matter. I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Do you see how Paul responds to his reality of suffering? There was suffering in Paul's world as well. He is willing to suffer the loss of all things that he might gain one thing. One thing. Jesus Christ. He is willing to count everything as loss for the sake of Christ. The one thing Paul wanted above all else. The one thing he was straining for. The one thing that caused him to count all other things as loss, as trash, as rubbish. The one thing that caused him to suffer the loss of all things. The one thing was the same as David's one thing. And that one thing was to know Jesus Christ, his Lord. Now, does anyone remember where Paul was when he wrote these words? Philippians. He was in prison. Roman prison, probably. He wasn't on the French Riviera sipping Mai Tais. If you, if you can do that on the French. I've never been. He was suffering in prison. Paul is suffering. I mean, Paul's shipwrecked, beaten. He is the quintessential sufferer over and over again. 
And now he's in prison in Rome writing these words. David, one of the greatest of the Old Testament saints, is suffering under the persecution and pursuit of Saul. Paul, one of the greatest New Testament saints, is suffering under the persecution and imprisonment of Rome. And both respond in the exact same way. The one thing they want is more of the Lord, to know Him, to be in His presence. Now, it's not that they were ignoring the reality of their suffering. It's just that in the light of the reality of experiencing God's goodness, His presence, the reality of our suffering grows strangely dim, as the hymn writer says. Yes, suffering is real, but trust and faith and confidence in the Lord and His goodness is realer. I know that's not a word, but I'm using it anyway. Now, God's goodness, God's goodness may mean an immediate deliverance from suffering, but that is not the point. It, it also may mean His sustaining, loving presence in the midst of suffering. And the question is, which one do you prefer? Which one do you prefer? If, if suffering is going to cause you to grow closer and closer to the Lord, escape from suffering, oh, that's nice. Which one do you prefer? I can't say that, that I always choose the second. Oh, Lord, let me stay in this suffering so I can know you more. I'm often thinking, I just want to get out. Get out of this pain. Sometimes we have to wait. Sometimes we have to endure. That's the final verse of the psalm. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. When the darkness isn't lifting, wait for the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Take courage in His goodness. Have faith in His goodness, in His love for you. Trust in His sovereign good hands. Remember who Jesus is and what Jesus did for you. And do one thing. Seek His face. Seek His face. Seek after Him through His Word and through prayer. Gaze upon His beauty and His goodness in in your life. Remember, call upon the things He's done for you. See what He's done in the lives of others. Dwell in His presence. Meditate on who He is and what He's done. Inquire at His temple. Ask, talk to Him. Express your feelings to Him. Be with Him. Know more and more of Him. He'll meet you. He invites you. He invites himself in. He says, I want to come in and sup with you and have fellowship with you. And when you do this one thing, I can tell you, uh, the Word of God and my own personal experience and, and, and the beautiful hymn all testify to the truth that when we do this one thing, when we turn our eyes away from our suffering and we turn our eyes to Jesus, that the things of this world, our suffering included, will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Do you get it? To be in the presence of the Lord is the, re- is the only true and lasting re- remedy for our suffering. Not that it always removes the circumstances, but it overshadows them. The joy of being in the beautiful, good, strong, sovereign, wonderful, glorious presence of the Lord gives real relief in times of suffering. The question is, are you experiencing who He really is? Do you know Him? This was true for David. This is even truer for those who know Jesus Christ. Think about it. Think about it. David had to go to the temple to inquire of the Lord. 
to seek after the Lord, to behold the beauty of the Lord. But Paul writes to those who know Christ. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? In our bodies, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the presence of God within us. Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, if you've been redeemed, Jesus Christ lives in you, dwells in you, and you can seek after Him 24-7, 365. And that makes all the difference in a world of suffering. We may, have, we may lose our health. We may lose our wealth. We may lose family and friends. And we may lose our very own lives. But we still have all of God's goodness through Jesus Christ. He is our bread of life. He provides for us physically and emotionally and spiritually in times of suffering. He is our light, our hope. In a world of suffering. He is our door where we can escape to Him from suffering. He is the good shepherd who leads and cares for us in times of suffering. He is our resurrection and life. He suffered and died in our place that we might be saved from eternal suffering. He's the way, the truth, and the light. Through Him we have direction and guidance through our suffering into the presence of the living God. He is our true vine. Even and especially in the midst of suffering, He enables us to bear much fruit. To proclaim His name that others who are suffering might experience His goodness as well. It's our mission. To take His name to a world that's broken and suffering. Imagine a world that had no suffering. They wouldn't know their need. They wouldn't know how much they needed the Lord. So in response to suffering, the suffering Uh, you face in this world, we face, and more importantly, in response to who Jesus is in your life, His goodness, I would encourage you uh, to do one thing. There's only one thing. Not just in times of suffering, but, but at all times. Do one thing. Make it the continuous habit of your life to seek to know more and more and more of the goodness of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father God, I pray that we would do one thing. Lord, and from that thing springs all kinds of things, but one thing we would focus on, Lord, we would focus on knowing You. That we would forsake all other things that we might know You. That all other things would be loss and rubbish and trash compared to knowing You, Lord. Lord, You are so good. You are so good. You were willing to to go to the cross in our place, Father. You were willing to suffer and die in our place, Lord. Let us do that one thing. To seek after You. To give our lives to You. To seek more of You in our lives, Lord. That we might then turn and and be uh, Your witnesses in this uh, fallen, broken world. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.